the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, this was a really good one. I'm really excited to get to the show. Of course, we're talking about inpa- the inpatient side of alcohol use disorder, specifically withdrawal. And our, we had a great guest tonight. Uh, this is the Curbsiders. Paul, can you tell people what do we do on this show? Well, of course, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And this is a great one. Um, the great Dr. Nora Toronto has brought us an outstanding guest to talk about us to talk to us about the management of inpatient alcohol withdrawal. So, Nora, what did we learn? We learned so much. Oh my gosh, um, we learned how to screen patients uh, to try to figure out who's at high risk of withdrawal, who actually needs to be admitted to the hospital, which was something I wasn't super comfortable with. Who can be sent home um, and uh, also learned about kind of what the different withdrawal management protocols are as well as how to safely transition people out of the hospital when they're ready. And we learned I've been wrong about alcoholic hallucinosis for about a decade now, which is always pretty exciting to find out. I, I bet you like most of the audience is with you there. <laughs> Dr. Joji Suzuki, MD, is an addiction psychiatrist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is passionate about improving the way we identify and treat patients with substance use disorders and has spent most of his career as an inpatient addiction consult liaison psychiatrist, where assistance with alcohol withdrawal management is a common consultation question. And Dr. Suzuki is just delighted to be here today so that he can talk about alcohol-related issues to our broad audience given that inpatients with alcohol problems are common, yet their alcohol use doesn't always get the attention it deserves. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Joji Suzuki. Okay, Joji, uh, thank you for bearing with us through some early technical difficulties. We're really excited to have you on the show. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and tell them maybe a hobby that you have outside of medicine? Uh, sure. So my name is Joji Suzuki. I'm an addiction psychiatrist uh, here in the Academic Medical Center in Boston. I'm pretty passionate about improving the treatment of substance use disorders. And uh, one of my hobbies would be indoor rock climbing. That sounds like a great hobby. Probably right now, the rock climbing walls are all closed. So I'm sorry for you. They are all closed. But <laughs> it's an opportunity to actually go outdoors and find outdoor rock climbing places. Actually, that's been fun. I do it with my younger son, who's only seven, uh, but he's a, he's a better climber than I am. So It's probably hard to stop him from climbing if he's seven years old. That's That sounds great. Oh, yeah. That's a great hobby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I will, I will defer to uh, Paul Williams. Yeah. And we'll add this to, once again, the list of guests who have way more exciting hobbies than I have. So good for you, which I think actually at last count is all of them. Um, I'll go to, go to my usual, uh, question. So I'd like a book recommendation from you does not have to be medical can be fiction, nonfiction, but just, just tell me a book that you enjoyed recently. Uh, the one that I actually have read a couple of times that I really like is, uh, by Edward Desi, uh, why we do what we do. And it's really about behavior change. And I feel like a lot of what we do as healthcare providers is to help change behavior and Desi, Edward Desi and Ryan out in university of Rochester have written a lot about their work around 
uh, why people decide to change behavior or adopt certain behaviors. And it's, it's quite fascinating. And uh, it's a short book, uh, Why We Do What We Do. And uh, I think it's a great read. That's a great recommendation. That sounds like 90% of primary care is what you're talking about there. So <laughs> right. That sounds wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> Another question that we like to ask is, what was some great advice that you've received during your career that you found helped you along the way? Could be when you were a trainee or now that you're an attending. Uh, one that really had, that has stuck with me for a long time is a uh, advice that I got from one of my research mentors. Um, and it was early in my career. And the motto that she taught me was start, finish, deliver. And any project that I'm trying to sort of think about, I should always think through starting it, finishing it, and delivering it. The final delivering part is some kind of dissemination, whether it's a paper, presentation, poster. You don't want to keep it to yourself. Obviously, scientific progress relies on dissemination. And so, you know, anytime I was going to agree to a new project, I I really thought carefully, can can I really finish and deliver? Um, So, you know, that's been a really helpful advice that I've had um, that I I stick to uh, to this day. That sounds like that is that is really great advice. I think we probably can all think of people that are that are good at starting things, but not necessarily the finishing or delivering part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, we have a lot of you know half baked sort of projects that never went anywhere, and you know that that's part of it. But um, I think we should try to minimize that. Uh, yeah, this is all starting to feel like an attack. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mean you, Paul. Sure, How could sure. I mean you? You get so much done. Uh, speaking of you, Paul, <laughs> Paul, it's been a while since we've had one, even though we've recorded a ton recently. So I just wanted to hear a pick of the week from you before we go on to the main topic. Oh, gosh, a surprise pick of the week. I um, All right. Great. I was. Yes, I can do that. I'm going to recommend a movie I, I just was watching over the weekend. Probably most of you have seen, but I I'm going to chide you for not remembering exactly how great it is. And I think that'd be the Coen brothers movie Fargo, the 1996 classic. It is so good. At one point I was just jumping up and down just as a refresher. It's the main character. His name's Jerry Lundgaard played by William H. Macy and probably his best performance about a guy who basically hires two small time crooks to kidnap his wife so he can actually get the ransom money and split it with them. And then things go south in the most complicated way. And it is just one of the smartest most beautifully put together, best written film that loves its characters. Um, and yet it's dark. It's funny. It is an almost perfect movie. So if you've not watched Fargo recently, go out and watch that. Paul, I, it's just shocking to me that you do these off the cuff. Uh, it just, <laughs> it's just great. I, I don't even want to try to follow that. I would just like to go to a case from Cashlack. And I have to point out, I was thinking about this. We, our show, uh, Joji, our show has become known for bad puns. and. It's our one of our co-hosts who's not here tonight. Uh, he's he's on the front lines fighting COVID right now. But uh, he he's he tells bad puns on every show. And when Nora started working with us, our our wonderful writer and producer for this episode, she started putting names, making the names into puns. And I think we have to blame you for that, Nora. I'm pretty sure it was you. I don't think it was Stuart Paul. And Paul always like just groans every time these names come up. Right. Well, I feel like this is prelude to our first case is what I'm hearing here. Yes. So <laughs> Mr. Al Cahal is a gentleman uh, admitted to you on the, general, that. <laughs> on the general medicine service. He has a flutter. They're planning an ablation tomorrow uh, by EP, but there's no beds in cardiology. So they send him to the general medical ward. He has hypertension, some ulcerative colitis. He's on a DMARD. And uh, 
also some depression, anxiety, some chronic pain. And, you know, he's on your service because they don't have beds. He states that uh, he had a drink about six hours ago with lunch, and he doesn't really identify any alcohol problem. So in the hospital, we've, you know, I've seen places say that universal screening should be done. Um, What do you think is the best way for our audience to identify alcohol use disorder in the hospital? Yeah, great question. Um, Historically, you know, we were taught about the CAGE questionnaire. um, And that's really fallen out of favor because the CAGE questionnaire was really targeting people with heavy drinking, alcohol use disorder, people who, um, you know, the eye opener, which would be, uh, you know, drinking in the morning. uh, That's typically to uh, treat the withdrawal that occurs in the morning. But in reality, actually, in the hospital setting, there's an entire spectrum of alcohol use. Um, and there's a huge number of what we call at-risk drinkers. And these are people who may not meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder, but are still drinking heavily and typically in a binge pattern. And they have a lot of you know, injuries that are associated with it, falls, car accidents, assaults, et cetera. And um, from a hospital you know, perspective, we should be actually identifying both categories, at-risk drinkers and people at risk for severe like withdrawal, um, et cetera, who need actual addiction treatment. Uh, because it turns out that the, um, uh, the intervention for average drinkers can be pretty minimal, but the impact is very big. Um, from a public health perspective, we should be targeting both. So the tool that we use that we recommend is Audit C, Alcohol Use Disorder Identification Test Consumption Question, or the first three questions of the full 10-item audit questionnaire. Now, with this gentleman, clearly the case is written. We're worried he, he had to drink six hours <clears throat> ago. It's like the classic, he doesn't think he drinks that much, but he was drinking at lunch, and we get the suspicion, eyeing him up, like we think he's probably not telling us exactly the extent of it. And this was, this is always a big question in the hospital. Like, how do you predict his risk for going into like a severe withdrawal, and do we have yeah. to start to worry about that? Yeah. So the way I think that seems to work the best is to have a pretty low threshold for placing somebody on a symptom-triggered management protocol. One way is to use the audit C score, uh, have a cutoff. Um, it could be four or three or five. Somewhere in there is probably the appropriate number. Um, a little higher for men and a little lower for women. Um, and then if you screen above that cutoff, then simply have that person be monitored with a CWA scale. And if they score low, nothing happens. But if they score high on the CWA scale, then they get medicated. And this approach ensures that people who may need treatment will get it. But the majority of people who may be drinkers but don't need any pharmacologic management for their withdrawal. Um, because in the hospital setting, disproportionately what happens is people get too much benzos. And so the symptom trigger therapy should be the default strategy. Uh, and it's a sort of a you know, safety mechanism um, in case they manifest withdrawal, they get medicated. And if it's not that severe, you leave them alone. It feels, at least anecdotally to me, like there's a lot of variability. You can have someone who will drink the the fifth of vodka every single day and be able to stop and be without any <clears throat> kind of issues at all. And you have someone who has comparatively less drinking who might be who might seem to go into withdrawal fairly rapidly and sort of surprisingly. Is there a way to kind of predict what someone's withdrawal is going to look like or who's going to go into withdrawal? Yeah. And, you know, I, I see that's a million dollar question. And most of my career I've spent uh, doing inpatient addiction consult. And that question has been asked many, many, many times over the years. And it turns out it's sort of like predicting suicide. There are many, many risk factors associated with it. But 
you know, applying that to a single individual is really hard. And the only thing that I truly feel, and this is, you know, largely supported by uh, the evidence base, is that the one thing that is probably the best predictor is prior severe withdrawal. <laughs> now, right. yeah. you know, so, so that's probably the best predictor that we have. And so, but of course that gets tricky because there's a lot of misclassification that occurs as well. People think they had bad withdrawal, but it turns out maybe they just had too much benzos and they, they were sent to the ICU because of that. So it, it's not a perfect, uh, you know, predictor, but that's the probably the best one that we have. And so what that means is we tend to be, you know, we're on the side of caution uh, because it's hard to know who's going to have bad withdrawal. Nora had found the there was a rational clinical exam article for for severe alcohol withdrawal, and there was this pause score p a w s s, and they they said the likelihood ratio for a pause score greater than four was like something off the charts, like over a hundred, and and it has it it's basically asking like has this person had severe withdrawal, and it it also includes some things like are they intoxicated at the time um, or or what's the blood alcohol level rather? Do you use that clinically? I, I know a lot of the clinical scores, like it seems like people that do this a lot just internalize them and don't tend to do the scores as much as people that are, are more novice and not, not doing it as often. Uh, I mean, um, pause is not a bad tool. Um, I've, I've worked with a guy who developed it, Jose Maldonado out in Stanford, and he's a great smart guy. Um, I just don't, you know, I think doing the audit C, which is a shorter, shorter tool, um, it's easier to incorporate into uh, the regular wor- workflow of nurses. Um, the CIWA score, uh, CIWA method is well established. Um, I, so I think there are multiple ways you can do it. I think pause is a good tool. Um, but if you look at the tool, it's, you know, it simply asks, have you ever had a drink before? And, you know, then bad withdrawal, prior treatment, blackouts. I mean, you know, again, these are pretty common clinical questions that we ask anyway. Yeah. So I'm not sure that that's, we have the definitive tool just yet. Plus, the, the study that they did was a very small study. So um, okay. it's hard to make definitive statements based on that alone. I, I had asked about universal screening when, when patients are admitted to the hospitals. And I know some places, you know, near Cashlack Northeast, that, that actually do a universal screening for substance use disorder when patients are admitted. But it seems like you really have to have the training of your frontline staff. Usually the nurses are the one asking this. And then you have to have like the addiction chops to back it up. Cause like, what if you, if you find it, yeah, for alcohol, you can kind of monitor for withdrawal, but for, for some of the other substances, I, I don't know how practical it is right now for everybody to be uh, doing the universal screening. Yeah. Universal screening for drugs in the hospital is currently not recommended because we don't have good tools, first of all. And second of all, I don't know if you guys have heard of the term ESPERT, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. And for a time, that was like the hot thing in the field, like ESPERT this, ESPERT that. If we just did ESPERT for everything, we'll solve all the addiction problems in this country. (laughs) Um, But it turns out, you know, ESPERT worked really well for at-risk drinkers in the hospital, trauma unit, and emergency room. And when, so people got really excited and, and uh, adapted that to heavy drinkers and drug users, the vast majority of studies have failed, um, suggesting that simply identifying people and doing a brief intervention, um, referring to treatment alone is insufficient for unclear reasons. We don't have a good sense of why. Um, but the addiction consult sort of model, I think, has begun to change that. You know, the idea that we can simply talk to a person for five minutes and say, oh, go get treatment. Um, that works for people with mild drinking problems. But for people with severe problems, 
that's simply not enough. So we don't have a good answer for what should we be doing for, you know, other uh, drug users in the hospital? Should we be doing universal screening? Um, that's still an ongoing debate. Uh, we think it's worthwhile um, having a system in place to identify people and having the addiction expert experts available to do more in-depth assessment and you know, treatment recommendations, et cetera. But the reality is a lot of hospitals simply don't have that available. I don't know if Cashline has that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cashline, oh, Cashline. Cashlack does not. I wish we were Cashland. <laughs> we would have everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. our, yeah, that's, that's our uh, big, big sister hospital that we're all jealous of because they, or I don't know, Paul, what we, we should make a Cashland hospital that's our rival. I think this has legs, actually. Yeah. I, I think it does. It. Yeah. Yeah, we're very bitter towards Cashland. Yeah. Uh, they're always flaunting <laughs> all their money. <laughs> uh, yeah, they have all the N95s in the country right now, oh, too. Oh, yep, yeah, right. Uh, they're hoarding it. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this this is a question that we, we had talked with uh, Marlene Martin, uh, Dr. Marlene Martin, about more of the outpatient treatment. But I think this question is a little bit pertinent. Maybe you have, have an answer to it. When you're trying to decide, can this person be sent home for outpatient treatment or inpatient treatment. Um, <clears throat> is the question that much different than who do you think is going to severely withdraw? I'm sorry, are you asking if the person's to be admitted inpatient for the treatment of the alcohol withdrawal? Yeah. Like how do yeah. you how do you sort of decide like which patients, like let's say this guy's like, oh, if I'm not having my surgery, I just want to go home. Um, yeah. How do you sort of decide like which patients are going to have severe withdrawal and can be treated as an um, that have to be inpatient and which ones can be sent as an outpatient and maybe given some outpatient therapy for that? <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. We're actually trying to implement that right now to try to minimize the number of people being hospitalized for alcohol withdrawal. And so a couple of factors that we look for. Number one is absence of any prior severe withdrawal, obviously. Um, uh, see what scores listen. 10 is probably a common cutoff that we use. Anything above 10, we don't want to really be sending those patients out. Um, no concurrent sedative hypnotic use disorder um, is a big one. And people who are not coming with very, very high elevated BAL. Those are the main things that we kind of look for. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, a person who has a stable home environment, there no, there's nobody else who's like actively drinking. Uh, ideally, we have a sober support person who can mod- help monitor um, and a person who's relatively reliable, they, they can be, you know, take the medications on their own and potentially call the clinic or come to the clinic daily for assessment. Um, that's the kind of thing we, we generally look for. Uh, and we would use gabapentin, not benzos. So we've never sent anybody out with benzos or phenobarb or any of that. Right. I guess, Paul, have you ever have you ever treated somebody as an outpatient for alcohol withdrawal? It, it seems like maybe if you were a primary care and you knew somebody really well and you could you could check in with them every day, then maybe. But I, I've never done it. I, I wonder if you've had. I, I think and maybe this is not a fair generalization to make, but I think the patients that I, I have that are sort of dealing with alcohol use disorder or have withdrawal symptoms probably don't have the kind of sort of social stability that I could get a hold of them every single day and make sure that they're doing all right. So I think that the patients that I would need the closest contact to are probably the ones that are kind of the hardest to get a hold of. So the short answer is no, I've not ever had the confidence to do that on my own. Okay. I, I just had a couple follow-up just to clarify, uh, Joji, some of the things you said. So the, the, the CWA less than 10, that was on the initial CWA score that you count. Like after you do your audit C, you say, okay, this person's at risk. You do your CWA. If it's less than 10, you could consider outpatient treatment if you go through that checklist and they seem to have some stable social support, no prior like severe withdrawal. They're not like also addicted to benzos using or using benzos. 
and and then the elevated BAL was that uh, great? Is two hundred the cutoff you use? Is there a specific one? Yeah, we don't have a necessarily cutoff um, because when you get the BAL, kind of deter, you know the number depends on when you get it and when you capture it. But if somebody has a sure. BAL four hundred, they're not going home. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know. Okay, like so, I like to make yeah. it binary. That's good. Okay, so if it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got it. All right, thank you. That's that's really helpful. It, it, so it sounds like it'd be a special person, um, like a special case, uh, because a lot of the patients uh, working mostly as a hospitalist, a lot of the patients that I see don't meet all those criteria to be able to go home. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we've been so um, accustomed to hospitalizing anybody who seeks alcohol withdrawal that there's a lot of resistance to actually doing ambulatory detox. And so um, we were actually going to implement a pilot study at uh, Cashlack. <laughs> uh, to see if we can send some of the patients home and using a sensor device um, to monitor people. Um, but the IRB would not let us let us do that. Um, there's still this really sure. ingrained mentality that alcohol withdrawal must be managed inpatient and the risks, is, risks are too high to send them home. So, Joji, I, I wanted to go back to Mr. the case of Mr. Alcohol here. And let's say that I seem to get in this position. Maybe this is just says something about me as a clinician where I'm, I'm not doing things correctly, but I get in this position where I see patients that have known uh, alcohol use disorder and have history of severe withdrawal, but they're not ready to quit drinking and they're not yet in severe withdrawal. Maybe they're on their way there and they, they want to leave the hospital to go drink. Uh, maybe they've gotten some fluids, some nausea medicine, some antacids for gastritis, and and maybe a dose of like benzos, but they're not intoxicated or sedated. Do you ever let those patients leave the hospital if they're just not there, like ready to meet you? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, my my, the way I would put it is, everything doesn't have to happen in the hospital, and for some patients, hospitalizations are extremely distressing. It's not a fun place to be. Uh, they feel judged. Uh, their normal coping strategies, their support system isn't available. Um, and their cravings to use could be, you know, pretty high. So I generally don't like to get into battles with patients about, you know, staying to complete their withdrawal management or not, especially if they're going to say they're going to go out and drink anyway. But I would argue that every one of these encounters can be used as opportunities to, you know, build a relationship, encourage people to seek treatment. Because motivation to get help is not by, it's not yes or no. It's, it's a constant struggle. And we have the ability to actually influence that, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And so ideally, there's a team in place that can actually support these patients outside the hospital. So, for example, we have a bridge clinic. I guess the bridge clinic is at the cash land. Um, and yeah, it must be. <laughs> sure. Anybody with a substance disorder can be seen with or without an appointment. They can just walk in. They can come in to just have coffee and donuts. They don't even want to have to get sober. Um, if they just want to engage with us, we're willing to do it. We have recovery coaches. There are people who are in recovery themselves and are able to work with patients in the community. Um, so we can work with people, whether they're in the hospital or in the community, whether they want to stay sober or not, and sort of meeting where patients are at. Um, and I think because you know patients get the message that they either have to quit or they're, you know, they're not motivated. You know, that's, uh, that's too simplistic in a way. I, I think we have to find a way to support our patients no matter where they are on that path towards recovery, which oftentimes takes many, many, you know, tries. It's a circular effort. It's an iterative process. And our healthcare system is really not set up to sort of support our patients through that journey. 
it's I think Matt and I talked about this on a prior episode. The sort of the I feel like opioid use disorder has become kind of the model just because of just I, I think how prevalent it's become and how much we sort of talk about and discuss it. And so I think we're everyone is kind of on board for harm reduction. Maybe not everyone, but lots of people are on board for harm reduction. And I think we can kind of agree that less use is better. And yet for some reason, if you just pivot to alcohol, it's it's still a lot of people conceptualize that as almost an abstinence only model and don't think about just less still like the harm reduction model for some reason is not applied to that right to this particular substance. And I just find that fascinating. I don't have an answer. Yeah. And I feel like for alcohol, it's Man, I, I think it's really hard to get sober in, in this country, right? I mean, there's alcohol at every corner, street corner. Every social event, you know, is kind of centered around alcohol, right? And, and so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really important for us to recognize that even with a lot of motivation, it's really hard to get sober. Yeah. So if, if you met the right patient, you mentioned discharging patients on gabapentin. What what does that look like? Uh, how how long are they going to be on it, and and what sort of doses are you using? Uh, so there's two ways to use gabapentin here. It's for withdrawal management and also maintenance. And so for both, actually, you know, we're looking at somewhere in the range of eighteen hundred to twenty four hundred per day is going to be a typical dose ranges. And uh, there are plenty of studies uh, that show that eighteen hundred is sufficient to manage mild to moderate alcohol withdrawal, and that's probably the kind of dose we're going to be looking at for maintenance as well. And if they just want to use for detox, we're just talking, you know, we're, we're looking at a couple days, but if it's for maintenance, we're going to, we're looking at however long the patients are willing to take. Is it a taper when you do it for detox? Like you start at 2,400 and then go down by so much each day over like five days or so? Um, you can do it. You can do a, like a, you know, up titrating then down kind of a thing, or just starting straight at 1,800 and taper down over four, three to five days in that range. Okay. And patients tolerate that dose okay? They do, especially if they're drinkers, you know? So sure. you want to warn that, you know, if it causes sedation, then dial back. And I imagine if, uh, if someone has another substance use disorder, opioids or benzos, they might not be an ideal candidate for this kind of thing. Is there, isn't there some yeah. signal for like <clears throat> increased overdose risk with using like gabapentin and, and these other agents? Yeah, very good. Uh, opioids. So that's when we get worried. Um, people with an opioid disorder do misuse gabapentin um, for, you know, it, it potentiates the subjective effects of both opioids and, and benzos. And so uh, you're absolutely right. At the population level, gabapentin, pregabalin, Z-drugs, they all slightly increase uh, non-fatal and fatal overdoses, especially for opioid users. So we want to be much more careful in that population. But if they're not opioid users, um, gabapentin is probably relatively uh, safe medication to use. So, Paul, do you think we should make Mr. Alcohol a little sicker and then talk about the, the inpatient stuff? Or is there more more of the kind of on the fence of inpatient versus outpatient that we should talk about? No, I, I think for sure we should make him sicker. So let's let's say, if you don't mind, uh, Matt, so let's, let's just say that um, Mr. Cajal, is that what we went with? Yeah, I think so. Sure. So we let's say we do a shoddy job of doing a, an assessment early on, and then we go back and he starts to exhibit maybe some signs of withdrawal. So we go back and take a better history. Um, what, what things in the history or what things on examination should make us think that he actually might need a higher level of care for his withdrawal symptoms than, uh, just regular inpatients. So I guess what I'm asking is what would make you think that someone might need an ICU level of care for alcohol withdrawal symptoms? Yeah. So if they're already in DTs or, you know, severe alcohol withdrawal, then the consideration for ICU level care should go up. Um, if you're having to give meds every one or two hours, for example, then at that point, uh, probably warrants, uh, something, you know, much more, um, 
controlled like an ICU setting. Obviously, uh, if they can't maintain airway, all that kind of stuff. But you know, see with scores that that exceed like twenty, you're starting. You know, I would be much much more worried, especially if they're that high, despite getting a lot of benzos um, and uh, and deteriorating uh, condition also. So. The first two days of withdrawal is really I see as a gold golden period. If you can if you can manage the withdrawal adequately during the first two days, then the risk of that developing into GTS is extremely small. You're never going to see two days of perfectly well managed patient, low CWA scores, tolerating the benzos, and then day three suddenly they're delirious uh, from you know oncovidol. That's not how it happens. Generally, how it happens is insufficient control early. And there's a ramping up of these symptoms in day two, day three. Now they're getting delirious and they're looking toxic. Um, so as long as you do a good job in the early course of withdrawal, adequate early treatment will prevent the development of, of bad withdrawal. But if you're not treating it well, so for example, if, I, if I'm on a case where I see that the first day and a half, the guy got nothing. You know, if Mr. Alcohol got nothing, you know, no benzos, maybe like one milligram of lorazepam and that's all he was getting. And you look at the CWA scores, they've been escalating the last two days that I'd be very worried because once you're behind, it's difficult to catch up. And that's the, that's the biggest downside to the CWA symptom trigger therapy is that when you become behind, uh, th- then you're being very reactive and it's hard to catch up. Right. I seem to run into the, some of the patients where it seems like they either they're getting underdosed maybe because un- the, some of the staff are unfamiliar or afraid to give the medication or some patients are just like seem to be too sedated what do you see as like the biggest pitfall and, and maybe if you have any suggestions for us, how we can coach our teams in the hospital through that? Yeah, great question. I, I actually feel like the, the bulk of the patients are managed relatively well if you use a symptom-driven therapy. But once you, so there are certain criteria that you escape the symptom-driven therapy. If they're delirious already, prior history of bad withdrawal, you know, very elevated CWA scores, et cetera. Then, then, you, then the symptom trigger therapy is not appropriate anymore. So they have to be in a fixed dose regimen, whether it's with benzos or phenobar. And that's when we have to sort of proactively decide how, how much to give. And if you have a team that's not necessarily that careful with it, the, the symptoms of over-medication may be interpreted as worsening withdrawal. So then they get more benzos, you know, and, and that can make things worse. And so I actually, we see that far more commonly than the opposite. And so we used to always joke as a addiction consult service that um, like in the time that I've been practicing inpatient addiction consults, we can count in our, in our heads how many times we actually told the team to, uh, to give more benzos. <laughs> now, <laughs> right. that actually changed when phenobarb got introduced. When phenobarb got introduced, we actually did see people were very nervous about using it. So uh, on a regular basis, we had to recommend giving more. But it's it's pretty rare that we actually told teams to give more benzos. Um, yeah, so so it's pretty easy to teach our trainees. If you have an alcohol withdrawal case, just tell them to cut back on the benzos. If it's opioids, we generally have to tell them to give more. Uh, so it's pretty easy. You know, the decision making is easy uh, for our consult service. Some of the stuff that you said there that sort of um, made, had me thinking. You said if they have a history of severe withdrawal, like let's say they have a history of DTS. They have a history of uh, withdrawal seizures and they're looking like it's not going to go well, this admission, like they're already looking tremulous and a bit tacky. You're saying that's somebody that you would do a fixed dose regimen on? Yep. You would okay. start there. You wouldn't start with a symptom trigger. You would start with a fixed dose regimen and you have to make a decision. Do we do benzos or do we do phenobarb? 
Okay. Really, it, it's still an unanswered question of the field. Is the phenobarb better because of the pharmacologic properties? Or is it better because our benzo protocols were really lousy? And the phenobarb is generally implemented as a loading strategy and a weight-based loading. So, for example, <clears throat> the way we use phenobarb is to simply look at the weight, um, look at their risk for respiratory depression, and you get a range of dose to use. And then you give that TID IV day one, and then you're done. Phenobarb is a very long-acting drug. You let it self-taper. If they need additional PO taper, they would get it. But you're done just by simply loading. And in fact, that's how we used to manage alcohol withdrawal or barbiturate withdrawal years ago. So people I talked to who practiced 30 years ago remember doing this with like barbiturate withdrawal. They would load somebody up with a uh, phenobar. They would wait till they would manifest uh, symptoms of, you know, intoxication, slurred speech, nystagmus, and then you're done. <laughs> Right. Didn't they used to do like phenobarb comas? Like they would just get loaded with phenobarb and then when they wake up, they'd be, exactly. they'd be tapered essentially. Yeah. And so different hospitals might use a similar loading strategy with phenobarb or diazepam. Um, but in our hospital, we do a fixed dose regimen where we you know, give a certain amount and actually recommend a fixed taper. And I think that leads to over-medication. And so I think the loading strategy, if you used it, I feel like both diazepam and phenobarb might be, might be just as effective. Okay. So this, I, I see a lot of variation in practice and every hospital I've worked at has had its own protocol for this. Do you recommend that people follow the protocol from their local hospital? It, it seems like this, this, these are high risk meds we're talking about. And certainly I, I don't have much experience with phenobarb because usually those patients are in the ICU when they're getting uh, loaded with phenobarb. Um, can you, can you talk us through like how do you think people, our listeners, should choose like what to do when they're approaching these patients? Um, yeah, I mean, I think having a standard protocol that you can sort of modify, I think it's really important. Because like you say, many hospitals, actually, if, they, if there's no standard protocol, every team will do it differently. So this is a nightmare for the nurses, you know? Like for each patient, the actual dose that they give is different. The PRN, you know, recommendations are different. And so I think having some consistent approach across the hospital that all the nurses get trained and how to, how to you know, uh, manage, I think it's very important. And then you can begin sort of adjusting uh, based on that. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, there's always institutional preferences, right? Like at Cashlack, people do not want to use diazepam. We've recommended diazepam so many times, they stick with lorazepam. And I know there are other institutions where they'll stick with, you know, other benzos. Uh, some still use oxazepam. We actually do not recommend oxazepam. Um, we don't think it's actually a safe benzo to use uh, because of, it's a very short-acting medication um, and it can actually cause some problems itself. Uh, anyway, so there's institutional like inertia around these medication choices. So you just have to get comfortable with whatever uh, they're, they're using. Okay, so I, I do want to jump in and talk about some of the specifics of benzos in a second. But just before we get before we leave phenobarbital, I, I seem to have seen some patients where they've been in the ICU and I'm not exactly sure what they're getting down there. Maybe it's the loading dose that you're talking about. And then they come out to the general service once they're doing better and they're still on phenobarb at some sort of a, an oral taper. Do you, is that something that, um, can you tell us a little bit about how that might work and how quickly we can taper? Is there any sort of standard way to, to bring that dose down or is it, does it self taper as you said? And is that just a waste of time? Yeah, I mean, the PO taper generally is not required for every patient. If you did the loading appropriately, the PO taper is not necessary if they're not showing any symptoms. 
Okay. Still, you know, showing symptoms like tremors and tachycardia, et cetera. Fine. G- g- give a taper. But you're talking somewhere in the range of three to five days. Again, as long as we're saying we had adequate early treatment, then the tail end of it, you can kind of do all kinds of things. But three to five days is probably sufficient. Okay. But the predominant problem is over-medication. With phenobarb, there's, there's a, I think people have an easier time like withholding because people get so scared with it. <laughs> but for whatever reason, people have love to load people with benzos. Yeah, so the the benzo stuff, uh, I guess like like you uh, at Cashlack that I work at um, and have worked at, I've I've been in a lot of hospitals at this point in my career, and they've they've all just by chance used lorazepam. Is there between lorazepam, diazepam, and chlordiazepoxide, which is uh, hard to say, how do you? Why do you think? Are there certain reasons people choose one over the other? And why do you specifically like diazepam best? Yeah, I, I mean, I think diazepam provides the, the smoothest withdrawal. Um, however, obviously, it can accumulate. Hepatic you know, impairment can, it can cause problems. Uh, diazepam is a little bit more um, like a faster onset. So the initial kinetics actually contributes to the, the liking of it. And so there's a greater misuse potential. But other than that, I feel like lorazepam actually would be safer if you had to pick one, because obviously it's a short-acting uh, benzo, no active metabolites, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think the diazepam, the quick, on, quick onset, uh, very easily absorbed, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a good benzo. But it, ben, uh, diazepam or lorazepam, I think both are fine. Mm-hmm. Do we have to worry about IV to PO conversion with, with those? Is it one-to-one with diazepam since it's well-absorbed? Yeah. Most benzos, the bioavailability for the oral is going to be 80 to 90%. Uh, the only, so, so, you know, as long as they can take PO, it's, it's not that different at all. It's not that different. But the biggest concern would be somebody who's a heavy drinker. They can have a lot of gastric irritation that can impair absorption. Um, mm-hmm. Most patients, you might want to you know, favor IV or, you know, increase the dose for PO. And you mentioned liver dysfunction with the benzos. Is there one that's better than the other? I, I was trying to look this up a little bit today and it was, I was getting confused for some reason. I was probably just looking in the wrong places. Yeah, I think lorazepam is probably the safest one to use. And again, oxazepam is a commonly used benzo for that purpose. But um, because it's, a, it's even shorter acting than lorazepam, uh, it actually can cause what's called late onset seizures. So we think about alcohol withdrawal seizures occurring within the first two days after cessation, right? But if you do a uh, detox with oxazepam, these are studies from like the 80s, you know, 70s, uh, after the completion of the taper, the two-day period after that, uh, a proportion of patients can actually have seizures. It's called late-onset seizures, and it's been demonstrated with oxazepam. Now, I've seen that actually happen with other benzos, uh, but, but since there is a study that's showing that oxazepam can cause it, I just feel like polarizepam is a safer medication to use. I'm not sure if this is the place for this, but because I feel like you've touched on all these points kind of just peripherally about the conversations we've been having. But let's let's suppose for a second that we're completely incompetent. We did not do a substance use history at all. The patient becomes agitated and tachycardic, and we just let him go because we're, we're lazy or overwhelmed or we're, we're dealing with COVID patients. Could you just sort of talk me through kind of the natural history of how withdrawal progresses, like go through, you know, what, what we could expect if we just did not treat the patient off, we failed to prevent anything with all these medications <laughs> we're talking about. So right, like right. post-nosis versus DTs versus withdrawal seizures, like how do they all 
Of course. So, so the vast majority of patients, if you did what you described, will be fine. They're going to go through a period of two to three or four days of discomfort, of mild withdrawal symptoms, headache, nausea, anxiety, restlessness, insomnia, um, maybe mild perceptual disturbances, but nothing serious, um, lots of cravings, um, but it's self-limiting. I was out in a Navajo um, reservation a number of years ago and to help with their addiction treatment out there. And uh, they don't really have much. Actually, they have nothing uh, except for one clinic uh, affiliated with the uh, Indian Health Services. And what I learned is that every Monday morning, the police will drop off a bunch of people at the clinic because they're all picked up uh, you know, over the weekend who are public intoxication or drunk driving. And they really don't have any, anything else. So they just get dropped off Monday morning at the clinic to get checked in. And 100% of the patients at that clinic are mandated patients. None, none of them were there for volunteers. They're all sent <laughs> right. there by the police. And after the intake... Uh, so they're all waiting in line Monday morning. They're all shaking and, you know, uh, in withdrawal and doing their intake process. And I was like, so I was kind of stunned, right? I'm like, this doesn't feel safe at all. Like, uh, how often do you have to send patients to the emergency room because they're having bad withdrawal? And they're like, uh, maybe once or twice a year. Meaning wow. uh, the majority of them are going to be fine. They're heavy drinkers. They're not going to have severe withdrawal. It's uncomfortable, but they're not, you know, they're not going to end up in the hospital because of that. Some will. So this is a challenge, right? You know, we don't really know who's going to have that bad withdrawal other than asking prior bad withdrawal. And so, so, so most of them are going to have a self-limiting mild alcohol withdrawal that's uncomfortable, but it's not going to lead to a whole, a whole lot else. But for those who do have bad withdrawal, the first two days is when you have the, you know, seizures. Uh, and then past that, after two days is when the delirium leak sets in. And it's untreated. Mortality rates can be as high as 20, 30, 40%, um, which can persist for five, even longer. Elderly, it can, it can probably last even longer, five to 10 days untreated. Yeah. And one thing I'll also point out is that <clears throat> I think it was in the script, and this is a frequent uh, misunderstanding, is alcoholic hallucinosis. That's often sort of commented in the context of severe withdrawal. Um, it's actually not a withdrawal syndrome. It, it tends to, in, to begin during withdrawal. But the definition of alcoholic hallucinosis is persisting perceptual disturbances past the withdrawal. And in fact, the treatment is not benzos. The treatment is actually antipsychotics. And it's a distinct process from a psychotic disorder. So it's not simply a psychotic disorder you know, manifesting itself. It's a different disease altogether. And so, uh, yeah, it's oftentimes conceptualized as a part of a severe withdrawal, but it's actually not. Holy cow. Did All right, know I know that. Had that wrong for now a full decade, so that's <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and and that, because the treatment is antipsychotics, benzos don't make it better. Gotcha. And I was I reading that the the hallucinosis is they have normal attention and cognition versus delirium tremens. The Correct. hallucinations would be they'd be delirious and not making sense. And correct. And DTs, I mean, it's a true medical emergency. People look toxic. They don't look. They don't look. You know, well at all. Alcoholic hallucinosis, people can be pretty, you know, pretty calm. And they'll say, oh, yeah, when I stop drinking, I start hearing voices. And they start, you know, berating me. Oh, Zyprexa takes care of it. That kind of thing. Oh, Olanzapine will take care of it. That sort of thing. 
Joji, I was when I was looking into this, that one of the questions I wanted to to, to look into for preparing for this was the the whole banana bag thing because there was some people I remember on Twitter kind of like bashing the fact that banana bags are are not used, and I thought it was interesting. the the point The point that they were making was that there is thiamine deficiency in patients with alcohol use disorder pretty commonly, but the banana bag takes a very long time to go in, and you can give the thiamine like the hundred of IV thiamine much quicker and just kind of like you can give the components separately. You don't have to necessarily give them this. Uh, the multivitamin, I believe, is what gives it sort of the yellow color. But do you, how important are the electrolyte abnormalities? Maybe that's not, maybe that's out of your scope as the addiction psychiatrist, but do you get on the primary teams, have to remind them about that? Or do you have any guidance, general guidance there? Yeah, for the thymine, definitely. The, the, the medical dogma for many decades throughout my training has been give the banana bag, which is 100 milligram of thymine IV, right? And, and I, I guess I didn't appreciate that, that, you know, giving it an IV push versus a, you know, a bag is, you know, a, a hassle. But actually, um, so there's a couple things. We know that people who drink heavily are thymine deficient at baseline. Um, it, it, they just are. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we learned in medical school about the classic triad of important case encephalopathy, ataxia, uh, ophthalmoplegia, and, you know, mental status change. But the vast majority of people who have thymine deficiency actually don't manifest that uh, classic triad. And based on autopsy studies, we know that people who have, you know, heavy drinking, who are never diagnosed clinically, actually have histologic evidence of, you know, Wernicke's or other, you know, damage to the brain from thymine deficiency. And, um, what we also know is that the after the initial thymine IV is given, people are simply given uh, PO thymine as a sort of a, you know continuation of the thymine. And so, I think what's pretty clear at this point is that the initial 100 milligram thymine is great, but it's probably not enough to reverse deficiency. And the PO thymine that comes after is completely useless. Uh, it completely saturates the active transporters in the gut lumen, so most of it is not even absorbed. And even if it's absorbed. Um, the thymine has to go from the blood, uh, you know, for, from a circulation into your brain, past the blood-brain barrier. And the only way to really drive thymine into the brain is to change the concentration gradient between what's in the, you know, circulation and in your brain. And the best way to do that is high-dose IV thymine. And so that's the current standard of practice. There are some studies out there, uh, not, not great, you know, studies, but the high-dose thymine is probably the, the way to go. And that's it took some time for people to sort of uh, accept that. Uh, and because the argument that we make is IV thymine, even a high dose, has essentially no risk. It's a vitamin. Uh, we know that people are deficient. Um, let's take that out of the equation. They may not have actually Wernicke's, but let's just buff them up before, before they leave. And so I am a true believer in ma- making sure that we give people adequate thymine because many of these folks are. But it, you know, if they have a severe drinking problem, many of them are not eating at all. The high dose is the 500 three times a day for two days and then something. Do you, do you know the regimen offhand? We recommend anywhere from two to 500 IVTID for a couple of days. And then you can you go to oral after that for just like a maintenance dosing? Or do you think oral is just like, or even a multivitamin, do you even recommend that afterwards for the B6 and the folate and whatever else is potentially no, unless, deficient? Unless they have niacin deficiency which is pellagra. And if they have that, sure. Then that's a very different way to manage it. You don't, you don't give high-dose niacin. You actually replete it over time. But if there's no 
nothing else, I would just give the thymine in-house and then they don't, they don't need to take the multivitamins afterwards. I recommend that they eat. So we, we're going to go back, we're going to go back to not being incompetent. We're going to go back to our baseline level of, of superb care and say that we, we prevented bad things from happening to Mr. Kohal. Um, and he's actually, he's expressed interest in maybe cutting back on his drinking and maybe even recovery. And so we consult our, our addiction services to sort of help with that transition. And I'm wondering, um, since this is one of your areas of expertise, what does that transition look like? How can we sort of tee patients up for success? And what have you done um, at your institution to make sure that that transition goes well? Yeah, a couple things. I think um, we completely underutilize medications. I was kind of pooping the medications a little bit, but we definitely should be utilizing it far more. And if there's uh, if there's access to the extended release naltrexone, that's a great uh, medication to 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 use. Um, the manufacturer actually offers free shot per person per calendar year anywhere in the country because they're so desperate for wow. business. They offer free shots if you sign up for the program for a patient in a calendar year. So, so extended release naltrexone or PO naltrexone, any of the medications, great. We want to start it in the hospital. What I tell my trainees all the time is if a patient needs to start an SSRI, like fluoxetine, you know, it's, it's okay that we defer to the primary care doctor to start it, right? The typical primary care doctor is perfectly willing to start fluoxetine, you know, manage it, you know, right? But if I ask the primary care doctor, typical one, I said, hey, this patient, your patient's being discharged today. You're seeing him next week. Can you start an altrexone? There's a, there's a very little chance that's actually going to happen. I've had patients, you know, primary care doctors refuse to start it. However, if we started in the hospital, it's pretty rare that a primary care doctor will say, no, I don't want to continue it. In fact, that right. becomes an opportunity to do, do some teaching and say, you know, what are we, what are we trying to manage, the adverse effects and monitoring strategies, you know, that sort of thing. So starting medications in the hospital, I think is very critical. The other part is the linkage part, you know, ongoing treatment. Medication alone is not going to cut it for alcohol. They're going to need a lot of support. It could be meetings. It could be more intensive treatment, whatever it is, <clears throat> the sooner you can get them connected, the better it is. If the appointment is one month out, it's just not going to work. You know, we, so I mentioned the bridge clinic that we have at the Cashline Hospital. Uh, we some appointments on the day Damn of Cashline. discharge. <laughs> we sometimes make appointments at the bridge clinic on the day of discharge. Despite Damn. that, many patients ever make it. Right. So we literally have to make it as easy as possible for people to make it to the next appointment. And some of the strategies we use are like, you know, warm handoff. We might have that recovery coach meet the patient in the hospital, engage with them a little bit, uh, and then actually literally walk them down to the bridge clinic so they, they show up. And if they show up, actually outcomes aren't that bad. Um, you know, we, we've, we've been able to demonstrate that probably better with the opioid patients. Alcohol, not, not as good. But it's that initial linkage is so critical. So let's start medications. Let's do linkage. And then finally, I, you know, in the hospital setting, using motivational interviewing. I, to me, that's, I'm very passionate about it. And uh, it's a way for us to be able to demonstrate empathy and respect people's autonomy uh, and, and to demonstrate compassion. But it's not simply about letting them do whatever they want. It's, 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 that's, those principles are used to, as a leverage to help guide patients towards change. So it's not this sort of, yeah, do whatever you want. It's more like, you know, let, let, let me connect with you and then use that to generally guide you towards health. And so those are some of the basic elements I think are critical uh, in ensuring that patients get connected to ongoing treatment. 
And so in terms of the timing of starting the naltrexone, let's say you want to start oral naltrexone because the patient's not maybe willing to commit to the injection at that time. Where during the hospital course do you do that? Is it the day of discharge? Is it when they're done, they're a benzo taper? Like what's the appropriate timing of the initiation of naltrexone? Actually, at the end of the detox is perfectly fine. In fact, the studies will recommend that four days of absence, you know, so last day, last drink and four days is the, it actually improves the outcomes for both naltrexone and some of the other medications. It's not clear why. So it's perfectly okay to start these medications, you know, well into the hospitalization or, or, or close to time at the short. And then I guess my other question I would have is, you know, during that, trans- sorry to be taking up so much of the conversational space, but during that transition to the bridge clinic, when the patient arrives to that appointment, who, who is seeing them at that initial visit? Is it a psychiatrist? Is it a social worker, a peer recovery specialist, like what, all the above, what does that look like? Yeah, it, it could, it depends on the person. Um, it could be a psychiatrist. It could be a primary care doc. We have a mixture of providers, primary care doc, ID physician, nurse practitioner, psychiatrist, uh, and of course, recovery coaches and a resource specialist. And so it kind of depends on what they're kind of looking for uh, and where they're at. If they actually want to talk about medications, uh, you know, maybe the med- uh, medical person is better. Uh, if they want to talk more about mental health issues, uh, it could be the mental health person. So it kind of depends. Um, we try to maybe match people to who we think would be a good match for them. We, we offer recovery coach to everybody if, if they're willing to work with sure. This is probably just availability bias, Paul, because of the circles that we are now running in. But I just I, I feel like there is people are now starting to take addiction more seriously, maybe because it's, the opioid epidemic has touched so many people and I'm hoping, um, I'm uh, optimistic that maybe people with any sort of substance use disorder are going to get more and more access to resources like this because you really have to f- help people fix so many different aspects. <clears throat> it's it's not just like prescribing a pill and then they're going to get better. Uh, you know, it just it takes so much time and commitment and uh, people not abstaining fully and just getting back and trying to do their best to use less of whatever substance it is. Um, but hopefully, hopefully more of these clinics can pop up. Yeah. Although I would argue that these clinics are, you know, that it's one part of the solution, but, uh, it's actually a larger failure of the entire system. Uh, to begin with, there's been a failure in the educational system, right? Medical schools, postgraduate training, nursing schools, um, education around substance use disorders is still fairly limited. It's, it's, it's different now. It, I think the last couple of years, it's, it's gotten much, much better. But prior to that, um, there were many medical schools that even didn't even teach anything about it. And so what we have is entire generations worth of clinicians, physicians and nurses and otherwise, who really never got trained. They still got exposed to what we call the hidden curriculum. You know? So they still observed their attendings, treat these patients in a particular way. They were pushed away, stigmatized treated poorly, and that's what you internalize. And also, addiction treatment was never part of mainstream medicine, right? Uh, it's, it's somebody else's problem. Um, now that it's coming back into the, into the mainstream medicine, I think you're right. I, I think there's going to be, uh, I think there's been a, more of a people taking responsibility for this patient population, but uh, we still have a long way to go. Joji, thank you so much. I, I hope you can get back to your family. You're, you're recording in your car. This is quite, this is, you're one of our most dedicated guests ever. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate uh, you saying that. I'm glad I could, I could be of help. And uh, thanks so much. And yeah, if you want to invite me back, I'd be more than happy. Yeah, let me monopolize your time for 30 more seconds. Did you just see the most, the Kraken review that came out on Alcoholics Anonymous, speaking of, speaking of that? Yeah, John Kelly's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
<clears throat> like that actually it's it's i know that's i think historically you know they've just not been sort of amenable to being studied but it looks like actually there's pretty great evidence now that <clears throat> aa is effective for for maintaining cessation oh yeah yeah i'm a big believer in aa a peer support uh they've done so much good and uh they they need the recognition and so i'm glad that john did that yep, study. exactly it's always like anecdotally it's always <clears throat> seemed to be great for patients it's nice to see evidence bear that out too but exactly. anyway we should honestly let you go sorry yeah no problem <laughs> Please thank your family for your time. This is a really helpful. Lots of people will hear this and find it incredibly useful. So thank you. All right. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Have a good Thanks night. Thanks so much. Yeah. Great to talk with you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. All right. Fantastic. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com <laughs> forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Nora Toronto, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, I've been Nora Platt-Toronto. Thanks to the, the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for our theme music. And of course, thanks to Claire Morgan from Natalie for editing. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. impressive you guys do this uh like in your free time like you got are you guys <laughs> yeah this is it's a whole thing <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome you guys are pretty pretty awesome it's a lot thank of, you, you know, that's very yeah, cool. this committed is... dedicated people but and i i have to thank you for you also came up with cashland hospital which i am just really that just that's I'm one of my, my application today <laughs> So long, suckers. I am off to cash land. How did we not think of that years ago? <laughs> they probably Paul, have like the Starbucks machines. Of, Paul, uh, I want you to tweet this immediately that we've thought of our arch nemesis hospital <laughs> and who works there. <laughs>